Please do turn to the book of Nehemiah. It's my plan and with the Lord's help to start a series going through this wonderful book, this man of faith, Nehemiah, who was stirred of the Lord to do a great work. What an inspirational figure for us to study. He lived in a difficult time and we live in a difficult time. He was a man of faith. And we need to be men and women of faith. And we shall think tonight he was particularly a man of prayer. And there is no blessing, there is no power, unless we are people of faith and prayer. So we come to Nehemiah. Tonight will be really just an introduction. And then we will look particularly at the way he was a true servant, a humble servant, how the Lord laid this burden upon his heart, and then how he brings the burden to the Lord in prayer. Well, we conducted a series in Ezra, the previous book. It was a couple of years ago, 2000, 2001. That was a blessing to me. And we now come to the following book. And in some ways, it isn't really the following book because this was originally one book. And in all likelihood, it was written by the same author, probably Ezra, although it could have been Nehemiah. Both of these books are written in the first person, I, I, I. But the likelihood is that one of them, whoever wrote it, was using the diaries, the journals, that were written of this time. Both books contain public records and letters. They are historical books. They've been evidenced by archaeology, not that we need that. The famous Cyrus Cylinder, a hexagonal small block of clay with cuneiform writing on it, corroborates so much of what's in Ezra and in Nehemiah, King Cyrus is mentioned, who was, of course, the one that gave Zerubbabel the mandate to go back to Jerusalem. So these are historical books. They are undoubtedly inspired by the word of God. And therefore, we can look at them reliably as history. But much, much more than that, this isn't just history. We don't just look at this through the eyes of Nehemiah. We look at this with spiritual eyes. The whole purpose of Nehemiah is to see the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. What is Jerusalem? It is our heavenly spiritual Jerusalem. It is the church and it is a picture of the Lord's people ultimately one day in heaven. So we commence this series tonight. Nehemiah, the name, it means the comforts of Jehovah. Well, wasn't Nehemiah a man that brought comfort, peace, strength in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem? Well, this book reveals what the Lord chose to do again. Isn't this extraordinary? Out of history. How often this has happened. Some relatively obscure man, although Nehemiah, as we shall see, 
had an important position, but he was a Jew. He wasn't powerful in that sense, but the Lord had his person for the time, raised up to do a work. And how often that's happened. You think of the translation of the word of God into English and how people like Wycliffe and Coverdale and Tyndale were raised up out of obscurity almost to do a great work for the Lord. So surely the Lord will raise up his people at the right time. Well, the history, very briefly, just to put it into context, these two books, originally one book, they cover the period 539 BC when the Persian ruler Cyrus and then following Artaxerxes were rulers in Persia. Persia was a powerful nation. It was a kingdom at the time. Southern Iran in today's thinking. And it goes from 539 BC to 445 BC. Now put this in your mind just so you can understand Ezra and Nehemiah. There were not one, not two, but three groups of Jews that were taken back. First, Zerubbabel, about 50,000, including some others that came with them. Then you have Ezra, and then you have Nehemiah. To put this into canonical history, because the books of the Bible are not in chronological order, this is the same time period as Esther, Haggai, and Zechariah. And those are useful books that we might refer to in future weeks. So the three groups of Jews that were led back. And they had different tasks. Zerubbabel, his first concern, if you can remember this, from a couple of years ago, was to rebuild the foundations of the temple. He didn't get to rebuilding the temple. The foundations were restored and the altar was rebuilt. So worship could recommence. That was the priority. Worship. Worship should always be our priority. In the week, in the day, worship always comes first. Our relationship with God privately and Publicly, But then under Ezra, the temple was rebuilt. Worship was reformed because it had got very slack and secular. And so Ezra was stirred up to do that work. But the walls still are in a heap. The years have gone by. The span from Zerubbabel to Ezra and then through to Nehemiah is 93 years. This is a long period. Of time, many of those who went into Babylon, the second captivity of the Jews, they would have passed away. There would have been a new generation that needed to be stirred up. So we come to verse 1. Let's just look sequentially at these verses. The words of Nehemiah, his record, his eyewitness account. The words of Nehemiah. And it shows who he is, Hakaliah. We don't know too much about him. And it came to pass in the month Chislu. 
you see how the word of God dates everything. Important time signatures. This is history. This is real history. I was in Shushan, one of the great palaces. There were four. Nineveh was one of the others. And Shushan. And this was probably the winter palace where he was situated and he had an important job. If you look at the final verse of the chapter 1, for I was the king's cupbearer. He wasn't just the person that brought the squash along. No, he was the one that chose carefully the wine for the king. That was a very senior job and he had a responsibility for people within the palace. No, he was a trusted official. He had the ear of the king. And that's significant. In the sovereignty of God, God chooses a man, chooses someone who was capable of being influential. And so there is King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is his cupbearer. So verse 2, that Hanani... This is one of the Jewish brethren. He came, he and certain men of Judah. They had come and they bring a report and they bring it to their kinsmen, to their countrymen, to Nehemiah. And he starts to ask him questions. Just pause there. Do you know Nehemiah was interested? He was interested in the cause of Christ. Here's a question for us. Are we interested? in the work of God all around the world? Are we interested in the translation of scriptures into languages that haven't yet been reached? Are we interested in the cause of the missionaries that we support, those that we pray for? We want to know, how do they fare? Here he is. I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, those that had gone back the first and the second time with permission from Cyrus, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. How are they doing? Is the work of the Lord going on? Well, it wasn't. It had become dormant. The walls were static. Stones piled up in rubble. Verse 3, they said unto me, the remnant, the left of the captivity there in the province, Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judah, are in great affliction. They were having great opposition and problems. Those Samaritans, those who were in the north, were giving them difficulties, we know. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. It's ruined. It's decimated, yes. The temple's been restored. Elements of worship, but that had faded. And so this burden is being laid upon the Lord's servant. How often that's happened in times past. You think of William Carey. Hearing of those unevangelized heathen, as they were called then, and so a society was called, was, was created for the propagation of the gospel there in Leicester and Northampton. And they gathered together many people to pray for it 
and there was much opposition. No, we shouldn't send missionaries to India, but no, Carey had a burden. He wouldn't stop. The burden was laid on him by the Holy Spirit, a burden for the Lord, a burden for the cause of Christ, not a theoretical one, but a practical one, a real one, a one that would cause two things to happen. He would do something about it, and first he would go to prayer. So that's really the opening verses and the context. Our first heading tonight is to look at Nehemiah as a man. He is a minister. He's a servant. He's a humble servant. Just think of where he was. He was in luxury. He was in a palace. He had all the comforts from the whole of the Persian Empire at his fingertips. I don't know what the luxuries were in those days, but whatever they were, he had them. He had them at his disposal. Who does that remind us of? Moses. Remember Moses that forsook the pleasures of Egypt for a season. Who else does that remind us of? Christ, who laid down his crown for a time. Even though the courts of heaven were paved with splendour, he was willing to come to this sin-sick earth. And we see in Nehemiah, this burden causes him to leave all behind the pleasures. We see him now weeping. Verse 4, it came to pass, when I heard these words, it's as though the penny is dropped. A great burden has come down upon his soul. He sat down and he wept and he mourned. And this wasn't for five minutes. Certain days and fasted and prayed. What does he weep over? Jerusalem. Just turn to Luke 19, verse 41. We can't but turn to this verse. Don't necessarily see Nehemiah in the fullest sense as a type of Christ, but in this respect it's remarkably parallel. Here's the Lord Jesus speaking. Verse 40, perhaps we read from there. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And standing there over Jerusalem, was opposition. Verse 41, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Jerusalem. It grieved the heart of our Saviour that Jerusalem was turned into a den of thieves, the temple, not what it should be. Verse 42, saying, if thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. Jerusalem was supposed to be the place of peace, the place of beauty, the place of strength, the place of splendor. But the Lord Jesus says, but now they are hid 
from thine eyes. Verse 43, for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round about and keep thee in on every side. While well, we go back to Nehemiah 1. It's speaking of the fall of Jerusalem again after Christ's death in A.D. 70. But Nehemiah wept and the Lord wept. What's the application here for us? We should weep. Weep over the church. Well, let me suggest some things to you at this time. I hardly need to do it. Gender. God made them male and female. Nothing in between. And yet, what a mess we are in as a country. We don't even know which prison to send people to because of gender fluidity. Is that not grievous? The children taught at school that these things are normal. Let's think of something else. Let's think of the erosion of marriage. Such a sacred gift. Such a beautiful pattern for men and women to raise children to care for one another. And it's just thrown out the window. Almost abolished. You tell somebody you're getting married today, they almost say, why bother? You can have all the benefits without. Well, these things should grieve us. How long is it since we've been truly grieved? I speak of myself. Grieved over Bedford. Do we walk around? Do we notice things? Do we see sheep as without a shepherd? Children with no understanding of right and wrong. No way to go, no pathway ahead of them. They don't know what the pathway of God is for their life. Don't these things grievous? Lost men and women, a prison with 550 men on our doorstep. And we've got the gospel. Oh Lord, wouldn't we bring these things to our hearts to feel them more and more this has always been the start of revival nehemiah is an instrument of revival now i don't know whether you're aware of this but in the united states in a university there has been a so-called revival for the last two weeks it's caught quite a lot of press and imagination but there's hardly any preaching there's almost no word of God. It's all singing. It's all just this, that and the other. But what's happening here is Nehemiah is having a burden. A burden laid upon his heart and being stirred to pray for the cause of Christ. Well, let me give you one more example of how this happens in the New Testament. Go to 2 Corinthians and chapter 2, and we look at the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians, and chapter 2. This is Paul's burden, just as a parallel to see Nehemiah in a New Testament context. This is what Paul says to the church at Corinth that had problems. 
But I determined this with myself, verse 1, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. What's the book of Nehemiah about? It's about a man raised up by God in his time to perform a job and the way he would perform that job is first a deep and heavy burden would be laid upon his heart. That's the beginning of revival. If you want to know spiritual growth, if we want to know spiritual growth, it starts with that burden being laid upon our heart, a burden for one another, that we would share one another's burdens. There's that hymn that we sing, we share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. Are you moved by the pains of others, by their difficulties? If only our prayer meetings had more inner weeping and burden for the Lord's people and for the Lord's cause. I sat down and wept. This isn't false tears. This isn't stirred up emotion. This isn't something that's concocted with carbon dioxide and smoke this comes from the heart I sat down and wept and mourned and this goes on and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven he was concerned about the conditions of the Lord's people the plight that they were in the honour of the Lord he wanted to do something about it, so he's going to pray, he's going to fast. This reminds us he's not even gone in to see the king yet. That doesn't come until chapter 2. But before he goes to the king, he goes to the king of kings. And he brings his burden before the Lord. We shall look at that. We're in an intense spiritual warfare. Just think of our enemies at this time. We're open as a church. I know of a church down in Kent and the pastor some months ago was clipped and quoted from YouTube as having said something which he did say but totally out of context and it was taken far, far, far too far and the church was brought into disrepute. Well, that could happen to us. We've made ourselves open source, as it were. We, we want people to hear our worship. We want people to hear the word of God. And we don't even know who they are. But that opens us up to enemies. And so we pray. 
We pray that the Lord will protect his cause. Prayer is the deciding factor in success in the spiritual battle. He fasted. Now, we don't in this country tend to fast very much, but the attitude of fasting, the principle of fasting, a bit like foot washing perhaps, the principle survives in that there are times when we need to put prayer and our spiritual agenda before anything else so that nothing else gets in the way. If we have a big matter, we set aside a time, set aside time to pray about it. We neglect the flesh, perhaps, sleep, perhaps, to bring this burden before the Lord. We deliberately neglect self in order to bring things before the Lord. This is Nehemiah. I hope you begin to see a little of the man, his heart stirred, the burden is heavy, he weeps, he mourns, he fasts. Well now let's look at his model for prayer and this is one of those prayers in the word of God that truly is a model. Often we get asked that question, how do I pray? What order? What things should I pray for? I find prayer hard. Well we all do. Well let's learn now from Nehemiah, briefly, this is what he says. He comes before the God of heaven and he says, notice first, the address. Do you know, I pause just with that. Prayer nowadays almost has no address. When you hear people pray publicly, it's as though they just rush into somebody's presence. No, not Nehemiah. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven. This isn't just names of God for the sake of it. He's acknowledging the greatness of God. He's acknowledging his lowliness and God's high position. O Lord God of heaven, the great, the terrible God. That word terrible means worthy of awe. Awesome. The old-fashioned word is awful, but we use it in a different way now. Awesome. We should be awestruck in the presence of God. When we come in prayer publicly, there should be a sense of awe and wonder in our prayer. Nehemiah has it here. O Lord God of heaven, the great, the awesome God. He goes on to explain that God is a covenant-keeping God. If God doesn't keep his promises, what's the point of praying? But God is a covenant-keeping God. And so we can go in the knowledge of that. What if he was not merciful? What if he didn't care about his church and his cause? But he does, because he's a merciful God. He keeps covenant and he's merciful. Who for? Everybody? No, it's conditional. For those that love him. For those that are walking obediently. If you want power in your life, if you want answers to prayer, you first come before God, 
but then there must be obedience. There must be that walk with God, observing his commandments, loving him. What's his desired response? Verse 6. This might seem strange. Of course God has got open ears and attentive eyes. But he prays to show his earnestness. Lord, it matters to me. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Be attentive. Hear my prayer. May my prayer make a difference. I'm going to pray day and night. I'm not going to cease and stop until the Lord has opened and heard. That's the way we pray. If somebody is seeking, they don't know the Lord. They haven't yet got that assurance. Day and night, prayer. Don't cease until you've got the answer that you know that your Redeemer lives. I pray before thee now, day and night. For himself? No. This isn't a prayer for him. This is a prayer for the Lord's honour through the Lord's people, the children of Israel, thy servants. This is for the church. You put this in New Testament language. This is praying for God's cause, God's church. But before he can do that, the third element of prayer, the address, a desired response. And then what's he going to say? He's got to talk about the sin problem. There's no prayer. There's no answer to prayer before we come with clean hands and a clean heart. And that can't happen until there's been confession and acknowledgement. And as a, a figurehead, a sort of type of Christ, Nehemiah is going to confess the sin of all the people. This is like a public prayer as we would pray on the Lord's Day on behalf of all the people. And he confesses the sins of the children of Israel. We have sinned. I have sinned. We've all sinned. And my father's house. How did we get into this mess? It was because of idolatry. That's why we were taken into captivity. I and the generation before me. We had sinned elaborates he's not going to leave it there verse 7 we've done very corruptly we've dealt with God in a corrupt way we said we'd obey and we didn't we said we'd get rid of our idols and we made others and so the Lord had to judge us it was righteous judgment well he goes back to the covenant argument Spurgeon called this being businesslike in prayer. We don't quite like that term, but what he meant was that when we come and pray, we remember a promise, a pledge that God has made. We bring those pledges and promises before God. We say before two or three witnesses, the matter is proven before two or three Coming before God in prayer, God will be there. So he says in verse 8, Remember I beseech thee, I beg thee, twice begging the word that thou commandest to Moses. If you sin, I will scatter you. Everything that's happened was right, it was fair, it was what you told us to do. But, the but, wonderful but, 
verse 9, if you turn from your sin, if you obey. And so he brings his petition. What's his petition? His petition is that God will hear and God will be attentive. Verse 9, a petition is that he will gather his people again from the four corners where they've been scattered and that they would come back to do the work that they should have been doing. Verse 11, we come down to this in closing. O Lord, I beseech thee a third time. I beg. Do we pray like this? Do we just roll out our prayers? Please bless, please bless. I beg thee. Let thine ear be attentive again to the prayer of thy servant. And he's going to be very specific. What really concerns him now is that when he goes before the king, the sight of this man, he's not being unpolite, but I think he's just saying, no, you're the king, this is just a man. When I come before this king, Grant me mercy. Grant me a hearing. Grant that he would be favourable, as Cyrus was. Would Artaxerxes be as well? Just one more point as we close. Do we always have to pray like this? When we're at work, when we're in distress, we may not have time. Well, look down at verse 4 of chapter 2. We'll look at this next time. He goes in to the king. The king said to me, why have, you, why have you come here? What's your request? And here's the shortened version of his prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven. He just prayed, Lord, help me. Now I've come before the king. I've already prayed earnestly. Now, Lord, help me. I'm in the palace. I'm before the king. Lord, just help me now. Well, the Lord hears all prayer, as long as it's genuine. Nehemiah, this man of faith, this man of prayer, this man who's given a great burden, such a burden that weighed down upon him like a weight, and it drives him to earnest, sincere prayer. May the Lord help us in the coming weeks that we will catch something of the spirit of Nehemiah who the Lord used in this desperate time when the church figuratively was in ruins and the walls needed to be built up again and they will be in record time. Let's close tonight singing our final